Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Sunday, the uh, 26th day of March. Why are we counting the days down? Well, we're getting to the first day of April. And uh, you know what that is, right? April Fool's Day. Nothing particularly entertaining or fooling around about this particular date, this first day of April, 2023. It has to do with the carbon tax. And the increase in the carbon tax that Mr. Trudeau has committed to and committed us to. So we're going to talk a bit about the carbon tax today. And we're also going to hear from you what your sense is and what your feelings are about this carbon tax that the uh, liberal government has made its cornerstone policy or promise, if you will, and uh, where this eventually will lead us. Dan McTagg, for 18 years, was a member of the Liberal Party, a caucus, member of parliament, and uh, stood against the carbon tax from the very beginning. Did not make the prime minister particularly happy, but it is what it is, and uh, eventually the parting of the ways took place, as you know, Mr. McTagg and... Uh, well, a party parted ways. Dan, what was it about that particular incident? About that, if we can just go back to that particular incident, that moment when you decided, "I'm done. I'm not going along with this any longer. I'm leaving the party." What was it about that tax that made you make that decision? Big decision. It, well, it was, and it had its genesis or its origins in the 2008 uh, green shift. I was just getting ready to move here and found my old green shift hat and green shift scarf, all liberal members uh, adorned back in 2008, and uh, happy to introduce something that I had no idea would be the implications on the Canadian economy. And uh, I remember many, many calls from the whip saying, you have to show up. I said, I'm not in favor of this. This is, uh, this is bad news. You can't explain it. It's going to drive up the cost of living for everybody with no appreciable effects other than making other countries quite happy that we get ourselves out of the oil and gas sector, our number one generator of revenue in this country. Oh, sorry, Roy, let me repeat that, that our number one generator uh, as, an, uh, as a sector of the economy uh, to the to, uh, Canadian government coffers and to our social programs, et cetera. So I said no, um, and uh, I suspected that by the time Gerald Butts, Katie Telford, uh, coming from the uh, McGinty Wynn clan from Ontario would make their way to Ottawa, that uh, the disaster that was the Green Energy Act in Ontario would now be applied universally across the country And uh, for that reason. Uh, and there were others, of course, as well. Uh, I just couldn't find myself as the guy who was uh, saving lives of Canadians abroad, bringing in the organ donor uh, recognition week, by the way, which is the third week of April. Um, all of these things, I think, were very, very important, uh, and it's just something that I thought uh, my old party had uh, completely uh, lost uh, its, its, its way and, of course, uh, uh, did not put uh, the importance of, strong, of a strong economy and recognizing some of the good things we've done on environmental issues, among other things. I thought this was just not the way to go, hence my uh, departure from uh, the once stable center and proud uh, and consensus-building Liberal Party. Did you have hope that uh, this was not going to take place, that the carbon tax was not going to accelerate in the manner that we now know that it will accelerate and has accelerated so far and will continue to accelerate. Was there a sense uh, that you felt 
maybe they, maybe Mr. Trudeau and and uh, and the rest of the caucus will not go along with this. The defeat of the Wynn government, the defeat of the Notley government, so the Wynn government in Ontario, the Notley government in Alberta, uh, gave me reason to believe that they would pause, uh, but that didn't happen. We know Canada was the only country uh, that I'm aware of that raised uh, taxes during the pandemic. That would be uh, with the first tranche of, uh, of uh, carbon taxes imposed on April 1st, three years ago. Um, and uh, ever since then, uh, I think uh, uh, the opening remark, very interesting from uh, the leader of the opposition, Pierre Polyev. The Liberals went as far as to even break their promise of saying no more than $50 a ton. In other words, this is it. No more than 11.05 cents a litre plus HST or GST. Uh, but now we're going to see that move to 37.43 cents a litre at HST, GST, so 40, 41 cents a litre. And then layer that with a clean fuel standard, which starts on July 1st which will have, when it's all said and done, the dust settles, an additional 30 cent a litre impact on diesel and gasoline. So uh, I had hope, uh, but those hopes have been severely damaged and, uh, uh, you know, really a state of war exists now between uh, consumer and the government of Canada. What was the actual stated reason for the carbon tax? Uh, the federal Liberals, along with their friends in the NDP and the Green. Uh, really flip side of the same coin, all felt that uh, Canada had to do more to, uh, you know, to diminish the amount of uh, of uh, carbon in the air, uh, CO2, uh, not being mindful of the fact that it had already done so, more importantly, that its energy could have provided a solution to many countries in the world, which uh, are obviously thumbing their nose at any type of emissions caps, most notably, of course, uh, China and India, but there are many others. And so uh, I suspect that was the point the government was trying to make, that they were going to try to be trendy and cute at your and my expense, uh, and then try to bamboozle and, frankly, lie to Canadians, as they have done, uh, with the idea that somehow the rebate would be bigger than what they're paying. And you just think about that for a moment. You're going to take in a certain amount of money, but you're going to give more back. Uh, that is, uh, that's not just creative uh, financing. That's, that's, that's poppycock. And anybody who would believe that... Of course, uh, you know, we could probably believe that, uh, you know, the sun uh, rises in the west and settles in the east. That aside, Roy, I think what we have seen here is a, a government that is uh, quite willing to use, you know, uh, you know, smoke and mirrors in order to get uh, very, very bad policies through. And unlike before, say last year, the year before, where we had all sorts of distractions like uh, COVID, uh, CERB, uh, take your pick uh, of, of high profile issues, we still have some. It's now starting to become pretty clear to most Canadians, especially here in Toronto, where I live, uh, there's no free lunch, that this rebate that falls far short, uh, and that, of course, it's now uh, spreading, uh, much like a, a virus, into other areas of the economy, most notably uh, your colleague, my friend, and ours, our, both our friend, as food professor, uh, has made it uh, uh, very clear in the past. Um, it's now starting to impact food prices well beyond uh, the cost of energy. If we project a year down the road, two years down the road, what impact will the carbon tax have had on us on the first day of April 2024 and 2025? It will exceed the rate of inflation and guidance that apparently every single uh, central bank, uh, U.S. Fed, Canadian, the Bank of Canada have been trying to tackle. We want and they want uh, a policy uh, and uh, action on not just the labor front, but on the cost of living that would be 
ideally in the range of 2% a year. So think about that for a moment. You're going to impose a carbon tax that is 14.31 cents a liter for gasoline. I mean, there's obviously there's diesel to this, there's propane, there's natural gas. But let's just use gasoline for a moment. 14.31 cents a liter. And let's say the average price in Canada is $1.47. Uh, and then you add HST to the to that amount of 14.31. That gives me 16 cents a liter. That's nine or 10 percent inflation. In other words, it is self-defeating for governments and for policymakers trying to combat inflation to ignore the effect of of an arbitrary uh, increase in the price of energy, uh, and then fight that off with rising interest rates. So, what are the effects on the economy to a large extent? Just the carbon tax alone, rising at a rate that is an, an, an imposition which is much higher than the rate of inflation, coupled with green policies which are diminishing the value of the Canadian dollar, among other things, uh, it's uh, diminishing the world, the, really the, uh, the purchase power of every single Canadian out there, and substantially so. Does it surprise you, Dan, that Mr. Trudeau has not changed course with the carbon tax over the last year particularly, there's been some considerable pushback from the people in this country, and he's maintained steadfastly, this is his schedule, this is what he intends to do, and we'd better get ready for it. Well, as long as the bribe works, and uh, you can convince people that they're getting more money than actually they're paying, it'll, they'll go along with it. But uh, something has changed in Canada. It, it is, in fact, broken. Um, 50% of Canadians can't make ends meet. Any type of increase, no matter what the so-called rebate is, will not satisfy those who might get it quarterly when the problem is immediate. They can't make their bill. They can't make ends, uh, you know, uh, ends meet at the end of the week. Uh, I suspect that what is really happening here is a wider recognition, something that was never talked about last year, saving except your conversations with me and others at Canes for Affordable Energy. We've been ringing this bell since 2018, 2019, saying this is going to hurt. It's going to be a problem. Uh, and we're now starting to see that. People recognize that uh, affordability is probably the main issue in this country. There are many, of course, but they all lead to the once inability to make ends meet, as I mentioned earlier. But more seriously, I think uh, uh, the uh, the time, I think, has come where those who are trying to say, oh, it's all about the climate, it's all about what, you know, the climate emergency, the climate crisis. I think people understand that, but I think it's over over oversold. And what's happening now is that people say, I can't make my payments at the end of the week. I can't be necessarily preoccupied with what might happen in 50 or 100 or 150 years from now. And so I think uh, what's happening for most politicians, and I think for a good number of representatives, is it's a get real moment because affordability is and the collapse of, uh, of, uh, of our ability to make ends meet, I think is really going to lead many Canadians to uh, choosing other options. And that option will not include those parties, the three that I've mentioned earlier that are committed to uh, ever-increasing taxation, which uh, many people cannot uh, afford, and at the end of the day, doesn't drop any type of emissions in Canada, much less address the problem in the world of higher emissions and with uh, China and India building new coal plants every week. Uh, Dan McTagg, former Liberal Member of Parliament, who has opposed the carbon tax since... Well, I, I want to be careful what I say here. I say that you opposed it since day one. What, were you opposed to it right from the very beginning? I didn't like it because it wasn't well understood at the time. The, uh, the carbon tax issue isn't just about one carbon tax. As I mentioned, there's a clean fuel standard. There's uh, emission caps. There is blocking of pipelines. Uh, here's the problem. And 
though I, I'm speaking to a different audience now, an audience that loves carbon taxes. You may love them, but the guy who proposed them and who won a uh, uh, it was a Nobel Peace Laureate uh, for doing this, uh, William Nordhaus, N O R D H A U S. Everybody should do a Wikipedia search on that, and he'll, you'll find that what he said is, "Hey, I like carbon taxes. It's a great, wonderful thing, and it sends the right price signal." But do not layer any type of other regulations on top of that. In other words, don't put a second carbon tax on it. Don't apply a GST or an HST to that. And do not, under any circumstance, uh, try to frustrate industries that are eventually going to make those changes with or without carbon pricing. In other words, he's also in favor of one carbon tax and nothing else. The Trudeau government has layered on not just one, but several other important steps that will destroy and frustrate the very essential importance of that existing carbon tax. So for all the pointy heads out there who love carbon taxes and think they're great and that they can make an argument about it, your chief economist on this topic globally, William Nordhaus, says that's not the way you're supposed to go. And so I was waiting for someone to come out and say they love it. Uh, When you mention Nordhaus and uh, they have any type of intellectual honesty, they'll run away, uh, you know, with tail between the legs. How's the party, how has the party changed since this carbon tax issue became the mantra for the government? Oh, I think it's an obsession. Uh, the Liberal Party has now become more of a, an economic cult, uh, you know, fixated almost exclusively. So how are you uh, viewed? I don't know. Uh, and frankly, it's not the same party I represent. Uh, and there's a lot of people. I think uh, one of the interesting parts is that we're now starting to see real signs of opposition popping up in the Liberal Party. Um, it's not well known yet, but I think it'll show up at the uh, upcoming biennial convention. I'm still ex officio. I haven't changed any party. I simply want nothing to do with the Trudeau cult. Uh, but more importantly, I think it really has to do with the fact that all those years of liberals working damn hard to get the economic house picture, uh, our economic house in order, uh, you recall the battles on cutting in budgets, finances, et cetera. Yes. Uh, being, uh, those were tough times. We achieved those. We've lost our way. And as a result, I think Canadians are going to uh, be dealt a very, very painful future as a result of the largesse of this government, not willing to understand the importance. The rest of the world understands the importance of oil and gas. The only country that seems to say no, and that, even to our good friends like Japan and Germany, is Canada and its prime minister in particular. And I think that narrative is about to change, uh, no, notwithstanding the 44% of women over 55 who vote liberal. I think a lot of them are starting to realize any person I know uh, who happens to be grocery shopping knows there's something wrong with the country today, okay. and that includes a lot of women. Let's see what happens when we take some calls here. Karen is in Burlington, Ontario. Oh, Karen, thanks for waiting. Go ahead, please. Um, I totally agree with both of you today, including Dan. I've always listened to him. I always like your show. I would really like to ask both of you, and Dan in particular, what is the carbon tax doing for the environment in Canada? So we have just over a minute. Uh, Dan, what is the carbon tax doing for the environment in this country? Zilch. Nothing. If anything, it's probably increasing it only because we have to look at other uh, means. So, for instance, the clean fuel standard and other carbon tax will mean burning more ethanol in the United States or burning more coal to create more ethanol in the United States and getting crappier mileage for our vehicles. As for the carbon tax itself, uh, other than the COVID lockdowns, Canada is increasing its emissions, regardless of the technologies that are there. And, of course, uh, uh, she speaks very well to what I think is, for many people, uh, a grave concern, and that is uh, that the country cannot afford 
to turn its back on the very thing that provides it the revenue on which it uh, it survives. So the carbon tax, highly inflationary, has very little to prove. Many nations have uh, taken the position of not uh, of not uh, proceeding with it. And thank goodness the Americans south of the border are producing more natural gas because come the next few months we're going to see our natural gas bills drop at the same time. We're going to see this carbon tax drive up the price and have this sort of counter effect, which is having no other appreciable effect except increasing inflation and rising interest rates. So the headline in the the Toronto Star, why do so many men dislike Justin Trudeau? Never mind the prime minister's policies, a new poll suggests many male voters simply don't like him as a person. Susan Delacorte writes in a couple of lines from the column, Justin Trudeau has now said it twice. There are Canadians, he admits, who won't believe him no matter what he says. Who are these Canadians? They're obviously not liberal supporters. The prime minister says, no matter what I say, people are going to wonder if they didn't vote for me, whether or not they can trust me. They are also disproportionately men. Anyone who talked politics around a dinner table or at a gathering of friends knows this anecdotally. This prime minister more so than other prime ministers or political leaders, seems to bug men in a visceral kind of way. So the star asked Abacus Data to take a closer look into Trudeau's particular unpopularity among men to see from where it originates and what drives it. So let's uh, let's follow up on that particular news story and speak with David Coletta, who's uh, founder and CEO of Abacus Data. How are you, David? I'm well, Roy. How you doing? Well, I'm I'm just fine. Uh, always enjoy our conversations. And uh, the last time we spoke, I had uh, quite a few emails saying, "Well, he didn't say what we thought he was going to say." So <laughs> that makes for a really good interview, I think. <laughs> I'll so, take it. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Let's, <laughs> Being let's... unpredictable, or at least you know, breaking uh, expectations is good. Yeah. So when this polling began about Mr. Trudeau. What was your expectation? What did you think you'd be hearing? Well, I think, I mean, I don't think I was overly surprised by what we found, but I expected there to be uh, quite a bit of, of, of uh, let's just say, a negative, negative reaction, negative uh, feelings towards the prime minister, things that go beyond policy choices. Um, I think we've seen it in, in action, right? Whether it's uh, during the campaign, people... You know, out yelling at him. There's, there's sort of this, there's there's an energy and a, a rawness to how he rubs Canadians of all genders, uh, particularly the wrong way. But there seems to be something unique happening among men that we wanted to capture, and and so I wasn't that surprised um, by by what we found. But I think the extent to which there there is you know a real dislike for him among men compared to women, I think is is something really interesting and, and, and to ask ourselves why um, helps us perhaps understand where our country is going as we head towards an election at some point. Well, why don't we follow up on the two questions that you asked now? Why are, why are men uh, seeing this prime minister as they are at the end of March of 2023? And uh, what does this project or what do these numbers suggest is coming our way or is coming the Liberal Party's way? Uh, as far as the uh, the popularity of the, of the Liberal Party is concerned, well, I think the first thing to say about uh, Justin Trudeau in this survey we did was in February, but we've we've updated the numbers and they haven't changed since then. So these are, are pretty accurate in terms of where our most recent snapshot of public opinion is, and and that is over time, 
um, all Canadians have become increasingly uh, more negative towards the prime minister. I mean, there hasn't been a moment in the last seven plus years that he's been the prime minister that Justin Trudeau has had as as negative as many people who say, I don't like him, um, either mostly negative or, or very negative views towards him. But there is a gender gap. And that's what we were interested in. Among men, 52 percent have a negative view of the prime minister. Thirty six percent say they they have a very negative view, meaning you go you walk down the street, run into, you know, 50 men. Um, one in, just over one in three of them are going to probably say something pretty, pretty negative and, and have pretty raw emotions about the prime minister. And so we wanted to understand why. Um, why is there the gap and what is different about the people who really don't like him versus those who either, you know, can say, I don't really care for him, but I don't hate him um, or, or actually like him. And what we find is that there's some pretty clear um, images in their mind, right? The one that really stood out to me was when we asked them, do you think the prime minister, the, Justin Trudeau is is masculine, feminine, or or neither, and half of those men who really don't like Justin Trudeau describe him as feminine, right? Overwhelmingly, eighty seven percent described him as weak. Fifty one percent felt he was vengeful. There was a divisiveness they thought he he brought to to politics, and almost all of them, ninety one percent, described him as a phony uh, as opposed to being genuine. So all of these attributes are obviously not something you any political leader hopes to have, but, but, but being seen as kind of weak and I think feminine was, was, was something that really stood out um, that, you know, when you look at why men may not like other male uh, political leaders, you know, that term is not often used to describe them. Yeah, when you're heading toward an election, when people are actually talking about an election without a date, without a specific date circled on the calendar, and they start to use uh, words like phony, that's not a good sign for any politician who's running for office, and particularly not a good sign for a prime minister, I would think, David, because well, the prime minister is the leader of the party you want actually to be pulling you and pushing you toward a majority government. Yeah, it, and I mean, I think it's, it's also reflective of just being in office for as long as they have. Right. And, and we had this chart in, in the report I did that showed, you know, how negative sentiment towards the prime minister has increased over time. And it's been a pretty steady year over year increase. And that's normal, I think, for, for, for most political leaders. It's rare to find a political leader who is immune to the kind of the effects of, of time and making decisions on, on their outlook. But but to your point, it's 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 why they feel this this negativity and. For, for many Canadians, not just men, but many Canadians, Justin Trudeau um, has always rubbed them the wrong way. Um, and in particular, in the last number of years, you, you know, you can probably look back five years and say there have been moments in his trip to India, uh, the SNC-Lavalin controversy, the way he, he handled, um, you know, to some, the, the convoy in Ottawa. And, and, and all of those kind of wrap themselves up to say, um, you know, this guy appears to say one thing and then does another or stands for one thing and, and then does another. And, and that's, I think that's, that's, that's like, the, that's, that's like killer, killer potion for, for political brands in, in any, in any jurisdiction. So uh, if I were to ask you, and I will ask you, uh, what do you think the chances are that Mr. Trudeau will form the next government uh, either by way of a majority government or a strong minority government, 
he's not going to come out very well either way, is he? No, I, I think I think it's a very difficult environment for the for the Liberals and, and Justin Trudeau if he's if he's their leader. Um, and and so I don't think the odds are are that good of either of those outcomes. Certainly, a majority government would be very difficult because basically you're going to have to find a way to convince people who, for the last two federal elections, chose not to vote for you for various reasons to now think you're you're the best choice. But why I'm not writing them out, um, and why I wouldn't write the prime minister out is, you know, everything I'm describing about Justin Trudeau appears to be developing. Um, in views towards Mr. Polyev among different parts of the electorate. So women, younger voters, uh, those living in cities look at Mr. Polyev, the conservative leader, and say, I think you're many of the same things. I'm worried about, um, you know, your, your divisiveness, your aggressiveness. And so I think we're headed towards a campaign in which both of the primary choices for prime minister are going to be deeply unsettling and un, uh, polarizing in a way to, to large numbers of, of Canadians. And so it's almost like we're going to be arguing who's worse as opposed to who's the best choice. And I don't know if that's good for, for our country or for politics, but early indications on how people are reacting to Mr. Polyev suggest uh, in a very short time since he's been leader, more people have a negative view of him than did the previous two conservative leaders at, at that point in their, their leadership. And, and I don't see that necessarily changing because his his the way he does politics is is very particular and um, authentic to him, but sort of off putting to so many other people. When did you first start to realize that the dynamics were changing in Canada among voters for this prime minister? I think there were there were moments along the way, right, that signaled to different voters that you know uh, he was there was something that they didn't like about it. Um, I think during the pandemic, there was this, 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 this brief moment, as with many political leaders across the country, where people put aside perhaps their, their initial impressions of him and, and said, well, you know, maybe I can give him a chance. This is a unique crisis. But, but I think over time, um, they kind of returned. And again, I point back to there's these events throughout the last seven years that I think y- y- we've seen an impact on people's perception. Um, and, you know, the, the, that trip to India was one where we saw actually within days that numbers moved substantially. Um, you know, questions about during the 2019 election around his use of blackface. Um, you know, all of these kinds of events that happened over his career as prime minister have been moments. But I think today the current context is that so many Canadians are feeling uh, worried about their, their personal economic situation. They're feeling the, the pressure of rising interest rates and inflation, and they're feeling uncertain about the healthcare system. And I think for, for, for a number of them, they just feel that the prime minister is, is not in touch with what they're going through. And at some point, and why this is so important in our conversation, at some point when you look at a political leader, any leader, and say, I fundamentally don't trust you, I don't like you, you're never going to be able to listen to that person the same way again, which is why when you started our segment, you referenced Susan Delacourt's quoting the prime minister said, people aren't, a lot of people aren't even listening to me anymore. I think a lot of people are not listening to the prime minister. When you're the prime minister of Canada, you can't lead people. Um, that, 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 that means you're never going to change their mind because they're not really listening to what you're saying. We're hearing more and more and seeing more and more that there's public opinion that is 
less and less favorable toward the uh, the president of, uh, of Russia. Sometimes they'll want to say the USSR. The majority of men and women internationally have a very negative view of Putin. I would suspect yet his approval numbers in Russia, I'm told, or we're told, are still quite high. This is the same Vladimir Putin who's wanted by the International Criminal Court as a war criminal. His military being badly beaten in Ukraine in many battles will not have helped him with perception in Russia. And my guest is Yuri Felstinsky, Russian-American historian, author of Blowing Up Russia and Blowing Up Ukraine. How are, how are you, uh, Yuri? How are you keeping? Well, very busy, as you understand, because the times are very, you know, difficult now, and every day brings us more and more bad news. Yeah. Do you find uh, that your point of view, your view of Vladimir Putin is increasingly shared by Russians? We do not really know this. The problem is that there is no connection between those people who live in Russia and we really do not uh, uh, know what they think about Putin uh, because the information which comes is very limited. But what is more important, there is no connection between people who live in Russia and Putin or Kremlin or those uh, people who rule Russia. It's like in the old Soviet Union, you just mentioned that you have difficulties sometimes to call it Russia instead of Soviet Union, but that's what precisely is happening there. Uh, today's Russia is very close to what the Soviet Union was. The only difference is that in the Soviet Union, we had you know, conservative communist party of old rulers who were not ready to make any, uh, you know, sudden moves. And Putin, as we see, represents the state security, the FSB, and he's very ready to make moves. So what do you represent to, uh, to Vladimir Putin? Your book, Blowing Up Russia, is banned in Russia. Um, politicians who've had any association with the book have been found dead. Uh, unusual circumstances involving their deaths. Uh, do you f uh, do you feel that you're under threat from Putin and his government? Well, you see, now we are beyond this. We could discuss this probably in 2006 when Litvinenko was murdered, but in 2023 when Putin is moving nuclear weapons to Belarus, uh, planning to strike from Belarus into Eastern Europe we are at a different level of danger, all of us. So this is not about me anymore. And trust me, I, it's not that I paid too much attention to my security before, but now this is just a part of major danger for, for the entire, well, I would say, I was planning to say world, but probably not the world, but definitely Europe. So nothing that he's doing is surprising you. Nothing that uh, that Putin is doing is absolutely surprising you. He's he's playing. He's using the old playbook of the Soviet Union, isn't he? Well, that's partially true. Except again, in the Soviet Union, we had KGB under the control of the Communist Party. Now we have the FSB without any political control, and uh, it's it's true that I'm kind of predicting or expecting his moves, but uh, unfortunately, I feel myself like uh, being a Cassandra, you know, who is telling about the danger and this actually, you know, nevertheless going on uh, 
unopposed, let's put it this way. And uh, But when, once again, if there are any uh, red lines, um, the, the transfer of nuclear weapons to Belarus with intention to use it against uh, Eastern European countries, and Lukashenko so far mentioned two of them, uh, Poland and Lithuania, is the red line which should not be crossed. We are playing now a very dangerous game, and I think uh, now it's extremely dangerous and naive uh, not to expect Putin to use nuclear weapons. We, uh, I mean, we have to understand that this uh, danger is real. You and I talked about that uh, last week or the week before, about uh, Putin and potentially using uh, nuclear weapons, tactical nukes, if he feels that it's to his advantage. And that's what it comes down to with Putin. It's Is it advantageous to him uh, domestically? And that's what he wants to know. That's what he, he, he needs to know. And he will move on that, on that information, on that news, if it's the kind of news that he wants. Yes? Well, this is not, again, this is not about news. This is not about propaganda anymore. There is, a week ago, uh, Putin did not make an announcement that they are moving nuclear weapons to Belarus. Uh, yesterday, he made this announcement, but two days before, he met with, uh, you know, leader of China, Xi, and that's precisely what they discussed. Uh, prior to this, you had uh, we had Lukashenko traveling to Pekin, and of course we do not know what they were discussing, but they probably were discussing again uh, the uh, transfer of nuclear weapons to Belarus. So it's uh, it, this is not. I would not see it as a just you know as a bluff, as one of those bluffs with which Dmitry Medvedev former president of Russia and a friend of Putin, uh, is uh, delivering to the West like every other day. Uh, this is beyond this. This is real. So when we hear that uh, in Russia, men um, are increasingly not sure about uh, Putin or are not likely to be supporting him increasingly, does that signal something in particular for the upcoming Russian election, whenever that's going to be held, uh, are the are the Russian people sending? Uh, well, when the Russian people send a message like that, is it the same sort of message that is sent by Western nations, by voters in Western countries? Does it carry the same implied threat of loss of office for public office for for Russian leaders? Well, Putin uh, would not be able to lose his office through elections because the computer which counts votes is actually controlled by the FSB, by law, officially it's controlled by the FSB. And several years ago, they introduced a system of distance, distant voting or remote voting in Russia, what would be a normal and very good thing for, for a huge country like Russia, where people live in Siberia without uh, ability to, to, to go and to vote. But in Russia, this leads to a situation when basically uh, you declare a winner, you know, you announce that the, the Putin would uh, win even if he's not collecting enough votes. So the, you, uh, Putin will win elections. He doesn't have to prepare 
himself for, for the campaign for this. And once again, we do not really have uh, understanding if uh, in Russia people support him or do not, but what we do understand is that there is no uh, possibility for Russians to influence Putin, even if they would like to. And we do not know if there is any internal opposition to Putin within the leadership of the FSB, for example. It seems to be that there is no opposition. So I think we should not expect that uh, he would be taken down uh, or, or killed or removed. I would not count on this lottery ticket, although, of course, it would it would be great if we, if we get this lottery ticket, but it's very, very probably, uh, again, uh, difficult to, to predict, and I would not consider this possibility. Okay. How do you see this, and we have 20 seconds, I wish we had more, but how do you see this situation playing itself out? This war on, on the ground in Ukraine playing itself itself out. Well, what I'm afraid of that uh, Putin, who is trying to stop uh, the help uh, which goes to Ukraine by all means, uh, will uh, use nuclear weapons in Belarus uh, and probably might strike from Belarus uh, into Ukraine or Poland or Lithuania. Uh, you know, with the with the hope that this will bring him victory over Ukraine, uh, and that's why the situation is very dangerous, and that's why for for the entire year, I I'm talking about this actually yeah. probably since the war started, that this is the most uh, dangerous and most uh, risky scenario that. Russia would move nuclear weapons to Belarus right. and would strike from Belarus, which is an independent state. Let's you and I that let's, let's you and I book a time where we can talk about this because this aspect of accelerated uh, aggression is certainly something that needs to be on the table, and people have an opportunity to respond to it or hear about it. Dr. Christian Liprecht's uh, book is Polar Cousins, and that's what we are. To the Russians, we are polar cousins, although they have us outgunned, uh, very easily have us outgunned. And the uh, question now is, what's going to happen in this relationship between Russia and Canada as the situation between Russia and Ukraine continues to develop? What's the outcome of this going to turn out to be in the, uh, the shorter and in the longer term? And uh, Dr. Luke Precht joins us from uh, Europe. Christian, thank you very much for, for uh, taking the time. Are we in a situation now that is of greater concern than we may have faced six months ago? Is, this, is, is the potential for actual conflict involving Canadian and uh, Russian troops greater now than it might have been last summer? Well, um, I suppose that depends on where in the world you're looking at uh, at potential conflict. Um, in Europe, I think Canadian troops continue to be a source of stabilization. Uh, and in the Arctic, nobody really wants to fight a war in the Arctic because it would be uh, so very difficult. But I think there's a serious risk of miscalculation in the current environment. Um, now, we do have, of course, decades of deconfliction mechanisms uh, with uh, Russia 
that we honed during Soviet times. But certainly um, when it comes to the Arctic in particular, Russia has the initiative. Um, and uh, when your adversary has the initiative and you're in a uh, competitive and contested uh, circumstance, then inherently the risk of misinterpreting the other side's move are all the greater. Um, and so Canada needs to play a role of stabilizing the situation. And that means in the current context, containing and deterring uh, Russian aggression and uh, and potential Russian adventurism. Now, you and I have talked about uh, this in the past. Canada would not be a uh, would not be a fair fight if if a fair fight means you know it's one guy on their side, one guy on our side, and and then we uh, and then we duke it out, as it were, and and out of that uh, duking it out, we're to come the winner. It's, it's, it wouldn't be that kind of fight. We're not militarily capable of standing up to the Russians in the manner that Ukraine has stood up to them. So from that perspective, how uh, dangerously undermanned are we and how concerned do we have to be about this reality? Also, the Arctic is a competitive space. And I think this is one of the objectives of the book to get people to rethink the Arctic as sort of traditionally, I think in particular in the minds of Canadian politicians, but in the Canadian public, been sort of the zone of peace and cooperation. And uh, no matter what domain you're looking in, so not just the land domain, but the maritime domain, the air domain, but also, for instance, if you look at cyber, uh, this has become a highly contested space. And so my contention is that Arctic security is very much about global security. And so if we're not being a stabilizing power in the Arctic, inherently, we are also generating more uncertainty and more risk uh, that emanates from the Arctic for the rest of, uh, for the, rest of the world. Uh, the challenge is, of course, that any investment you make in the Arctic is about 10 times as expensive as it would be anywhere else uh, in Canada in terms of defense, and that we have significant deficits in the maritime space, in the land space, as well as in the air and aerospace domains. In addition to that, we have significant weaknesses, social weaknesses among local communities in the Arctic and significant uh, deficits in terms of critical infrastructure all of which lend themselves to exploitation by hostile actors that aren't just interested in kinetic conflict, but that use asymmetric and gray zone tactics below the law of armed conflict uh, in order to exploit vulnerable communities, sow division and polarization. And so any approach to the Arctic needs to have not just a defensive component, but needs to be a whole of government comp uh, uh, strategy um, with a whole-of-society approach because making, the, uh, making our whole Arctic more resilient is key uh, to asserting our interests and our sovereignty in that space. So when we in Canada see a headline which reads, U.S. sanctions two Montreal companies for alleged ties to Russia, what should we be reading into this, into this headline? So Canada is not alone in this regard. Uh, other allied countries, including, for instance, in Germany, where I am, there's been uh, some concern um, about uh, where some of their products are going um, and the ability to by Russia to exploit uh, imports into the into the sort of Russian periphery countries, in particular the stands 
um, that are then products that are re-exported to Russia. But the broader concern here is I think that it appears that these are country, companies uh, that either faci- intentionally facilitated trade of uh, dual-use or banned goods um, or, in effect, traded in those goods themselves. And so I think for Canada, um, we've made a lot of performative announcements in terms of sanctions. But if you look, for instance, at the amount of assets that have actually been frozen in Canada, uh, the amount is relatively puny compared to some of our key allies in Europe that are much smaller countries and much smaller economies. And this points to the fact that Canada also needs to do a much better job at ensuring that Canadian companies aren't uh, either flouting those sanctions or are being leveraged uh, by others in order to circumvent the sanctions that are in place. And of course, Canada is a a favorite target for trying to circumvent sanctions in the sense that we are close to the United States. We have a close trading relationship with the United States uh, and we're a highly connected country. And so I think it shows that uh, we need to pay much closer attention also, not just to making announcements about sanctions, but to ensure that we're actually able to enforce those sanctions um, and to make sure that Canadian companies know that if they attempt to circumvent those sanctions, um, they will be identified and there will be serious repercussions. Are we likely to see a situation where the um, where the relationship between Canada and the United States is the, developed further and in a more positive way for the, the two countries directly involved, the U.S. and Canada? Are we likely to see that take place in the next year, two years, however long it takes for this particular relationship to to uh, to strengthen? Or is this going to be uh, slowly building up in the background until one day we, we do realize and we do recognize that it, it really is uh, Canada and the U.S. versus Russia and its allies, possibly perhaps likely China? Yeah, so this is a really good point that you're making. So, of course, we saw the charm offensive by the Biden administration, and uh, we saw lots of uh, uh, narrative coming out of the United States about what a great relationship the United States has and with Canada and uh, and all the accolades for Canada. But the reality is, as we've seen in the run-up in the news, there are a lot of areas that require uh, a lot of heavy lifting, and in particular by Canada, because we have a significant deficit on a whole host of areas. And I think, for instance, the border accord was a bit of an olive branch to Canada that the United States will take action that is primarily in Canada's interest rather than in America's interest, but that in return, it uh, expects serious commitments, investments, um, and uh, capability development uh, by Canada in areas that matter to the United States. And the key to that conversation is, of course, that um, the approaches through the Arctic are strategically the single most important element in terms of national and continental defense for Canada. So in terms of investment and capabilities, it is the Arctic first and foremost, and is the the relationship with Europe um, as our second most strategic ally after the United States uh, second. And as we know, the United States have reminded us repeatedly that we are falling short in terms of U.S. expectations and the commitments and expectations by our allies. And the problem is, of course, that if the continent is not secure, that means the U.S. cannot exercise its obligations in terms of extended deterrence, and in particular, in terms of extended nuclear deterrence. So any investment in the Arctic and Arctic security and continental security is necessarily also an investment 
in particularly the transatlantic alliance, that is to say NATO and European stability, but also more broadly in the Indo-Pacific in terms of broader theater stability uh, for partners um, that are under duress, uh, that are under duress by China. And the challenge for Canada is that on the one hand, uh, as I always say, the Americans are our best friends, whether we like it or not. But at the same time, uh, American interests are diverging from Canada's interests, in particular when it comes to priorities in the Indo-Pacific. As we know, the United States has been driving a much harder line on the Indo-Pacific than uh, Canada has. Um, and it appears that there's also growing ideological differences in terms of foreign policy priorities. And so the challenge here is that Canada, if it's not taken seriously uh, by Washington first and foremost, but by our allies, will fall by the wayside in terms of its importance. That is to say that the United States and Europe will simply say, look, if Canada doesn't invest and Canada doesn't play, we're just going to go it on our own. And that would seriously diminish Canada's ability to assert its national interest um, on the international scene um, and thereby also seriously reduce Canada's importance overall in the world. This has always been a risk, especially since the end of World War II. And this is why Canada has always invested heavily in both international organizations and in uh, alliance and continental defense. And so all these deficits and shortfalls that the Americans are reminding us of aren't just operational problems. They are serious strategic problems because not investing means seriously diminishing uh, Canada's weight uh, and the ability to pull its weight um, and to uh, proverbially punch above its weight as we have for decades. Just looking at an MLI, McDonald Laurier Institute op-ed written by Dr. Luprecht, our guest, Dr. Christian Luprecht, who wrote in part, notwithstanding the rapid shift in the international Antarctic geostrategic and security environment, even Canada's latest Arctic and Northern policy framework remains laden with outdated notions of Arctic exceptionalism, the Arctic as a domain of perpetual peace. Even Canada's 2017 defense policy, strong, secure, engaged, intentionally skirted NORAD renewal, leaving NORAD off the latest defense policy update yet again would signal strategic failure and abdication by Canada to allies and adversaries alike. Uh, the call into question Canada's already tarnished reputation as a responsible and reliable ally, and consequently further diminish Canada's ability to assert its national interests and bolster Canada's decades-long strategy, strategy rather, of uh, leveraging NATO allies and partners to that effect. So, Christian, what, I, what I'm reading here, or trying to read here, is uh, Canada saying we're trying to play both ends against the middle. Yeah, it's a, uh, a persistent challenge, I think, that... Uh the government currently finds itself in, in terms of uh, benign neglect of 20 years for the armed forces. But in particular, I think what uh, governments on both sides of the aisle um, have underappreciated the very rapid changes in the Arctic. And of course, there's lots of change about the, the extent to which uh, climate change is affecting the Arctic. What people underappreciate is um, the extent to which the security circumstances in the Arctic have changed. And where the Arctic was previously an afterthought, the sort of little white dots on the poles, if you want, uh, the Arctic is now actively in play. And we saw this, for instance, with regards to balloons making their way into our airspace. These balloons were clearly a test, for instance, of uh, NORAD, the North American Aerospace Command, in order to watch 
how uh, NORAD would respond to these uh, uh, to, to these objects, whether NORAD would be able to identify them, under what circumstances they would be able to identify them. Um, and uh, we saw a very different also political response by the governments on the two sides of, uh, of the border, Canada looking not to draw too much attention uh, to the matter. And I think this all sort of reflects the, um, the the challenge that we have in the sense that any investment in North in Arctic defense and security is going to be very expensive. And the government announced last year $4.9 billion that was widely interpreted by the press as sort of a new investment in NORAD. But really, this was money that the government had announced previously. And if you go with the amount that, uh, uh, with the premise that everything is 10 times more expensive in the Arctic, you're looking at under 500 millions uh, in terms of an investment. Uh, that's barely a down payment on the significant deficit that we have. Because if you look at the last time Canada made a major investment uh, in Arctic defense, it was 1984. So imagine you're driving a car from 1984 um, and your local garage is telling you that your car is going to need a host of updates here. You can imagine that the, that gets pretty expensive. And Canada has sort of been taking the approach that like, well, you know, we can sort of um, uh, sputter along sort of with the car that we have. But now we're realizing we need planes that can operate in the Arctic um, uh, in, a, in a digitized environment. So the F-35s, uh, we need a whole data-driven infrastructure. We need a whole new radar system in order to cope with uh, hypersonic, um, uh, uh, hypersonic missiles, um, as well as um, unmanned underwater uh, vehicles, um, and we need to cope with uh, challenges from uh, a, Russia, a Chinese Arctic strategy, so a whole new hostile player uh, showing up and making claims against our resources, um, and we can uh, barely manage to muster. China's involved in this, in this whole uh, exchange in the Arctic between Russia and Canada, if we're going to say Russia, Canada, Russia, Canada, Canada, Russia. China's involved in this in a major way, as well, and uh, they were—they are interested in their approach and their expectations, and we are—are are we fairly predictable to everybody who's in this in this uh, in this game? Well, this is sort of my my book makes the case that we need to look at the two poles um, uh, as a complementary challenge because the way Russia and China are playing in the Antarctic, they're also playing in the Arctic. Um, and um, if you think the United States feels a little bit let down by Canada's commitment in the Arctic, uh, Australia certainly feels down by its allies when it comes to the Antarctic um, and the broader sort of Indo-Pacific. And so we can see that the United States and the United Kingdom are stepping up when it comes to that in terms of AUKUS. Um, but Canada has a lot to learn from uh, the challenges uh, the, 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 the challenges that China and Russia pose uh, in the Antarctic. And if we took a more concerted approach to the two poles and we looked at uh, the importance that um, our contribution can make on both sides of the poles in terms of not just stability on the poles, but, but the way global stability now emanates uh, from the two poles, given the hostilities and the hostile actions that we see by both China and Russia um, on, uh, on, on, on both parts of sort of the ends of the, uh, the ends of the earth, I think we would be taking a different, uh, different approach. So rather than just looking at our coastline in the Arctic and our sovereign interests, uh, we should be looking at the stabilizing force uh, that we can be by contain by uh, by by containing and deterring um, um, actions on both sides of the poles that are fundamentally run against our interests, whether that is actions in the defense and security realm, 
but whether that is also actions such as overfishing in those waters, uh, potential resource exploitation in ways that uh, would simply run against our interests. And so the argument that we need to be playing a little bit ahead here uh, rather than always catching up. Yeah, yeah. Just looking at an MLI op-ed, Russian designs on the Arctic aside, a resurgent communist China has been thriving on historical grievances against the West and revisionist narratives to underpin historically dubious claims about its rightful place in the world. China has made it clear that both poles are part of this aspiration, in particular the Arctic. Indeed, China has been engaging in significant disruptive activities, including economic and legal warfare, environmental malpractices such as marine pollution and overfishing, an expansive military presence around the world, and technological innovation to protect power, project rather power into the world's polar regions. They're not leaving uh, anything open to chance, are they, Christian? Uh, no, I think, and we underestimate that, right? That China clearly has global ambitions and it has global ambitions to transplant the United States as the premier global power in the 21st century. Um, and we can see the way China has been exploiting that. If you look at, for instance, the recent meeting uh, in Moscow with uh, Putin, uh, this clearly played into China's strength in terms of the um, alliance between authoritarian states that are trying to promote a uh, take down the the liberal uh, uh, the liberal institutional order uh, as political order as we've known it since the Second World War. If you look at the deal that China um, uh, struck between Saudi Arabia and Iran, where um, China was clearly able to mow the U.S. lawn in a region where uh, the U.S. had uh, long had sort of a, a disproportionate influence. Um, and in the same way, China is looking to um, have it considers itself a near Arctic state by its own uh, by its own profession, and uh, it has significant ambitions in the Antarctic, including uh, marine and uh, bioprospecting uh, that are deeply concerning to um, allied and uh, and partner countries. And so, how do we build a system? Uh, for the coming decades uh, that provides stability uh, in light of countries that uh, have had and have demonstrated significant disruptive intent uh, when it comes to not just international stability, but the stability um, and the um, international um, governance arrangements that we had struck on both the Antarctic and Arctic and that have provided for stability in those regions for decades. And they're not asking nicely about this. They're, uh, they're telling us, this is what's expected of you, Canada, or this is what uh, we are expecting of you. And you wrote, evolving technology in the maritime and aerospace domains are changing the strategic calculus, particularly with advancements in hypersonic missiles and autonomous underwater vehicles. Russia is already leveraging in attempts to disrupt critical communication and pipeline infrastructure, while China has proclaimed itself a near-Arctic state, quote-unquote, and has developed growing maritime surface, subsurface, and space capabilities to this end. Nothing is being left in doubt here. Yeah, I think we got to play ahead with, I think it, this is not on most people's radar, uh, the extent to which China uh, and Russia are leveraging technology and technological developments, not just in terms of their to, to support their own hostile activities, uh, but to disrupt, for instance, our own uh, communications, in particular, uh, submarine uh, cable communications that uh, transport about 98% of our data and internet traffic. 
Um, and uh, it, it, Russia has, for instance, demonstrated that it's quite prepared to, to disrupt both pipeline and submarine cables. Um, and China has demonstrated that uh, it is prepared to resort to uh, essentially global technological data uh, domination, to digital authoritarianism, um, and has shown uh, rather disregard for both uh, international law uh, and the, uh, the the sort of general norms that have provided for stability uh, for over recent decades. And so uh, one of the ways we deter bad behavior by hostile actors is to show that we have clear abilities not just to contain that behavior, but also to deter that behavior. That means uh, we don't just need to rely on the United States to draw red lines. We can draw red lines with allies. We now have Finland and Sweden, so all Arctic states with exception of Russia, uh, that uh, will be part of NATO. Uh, these are all states that are also part of the Arctic Council. And so we can um, certainly uh, establish clear norms in terms of appropriate behavior, as well as consequences for states that violate those behaviors. And my concern is that uh, China has demonstrated repeatedly that it does not take Canada seriously uh, as a state or as an international player. Um, and Canada in and of itself will likely have difficulty to assert itself. But the way we've done this in the past is, of course, by partnering uh, with the United States, with European allies, and also with allies in the Indo-Pacific. But that means we actually need to be able to provide those capabilities and also have a coherent strategy for how we invest, not just in defense and security, but also understanding how hostile actors are undermining our economic prosperity and our social harmony. They're doing it in particular in the Arctic. If we choose not to... Uh heed the warning, and I believe that's what it is, a warning by China, if we choose not to pay attention, what are we facing potentially here? The question for Canada is, Canada was a key player in shaping the second half of the 20th century um, in making sure that we provided for cooperation, for stability, and to deter aggressive and bad action um, by the Soviet Union. Uh, we can see in recent years that we have not been effective at that deterrence. Otherwise, we wouldn't be looking at Putin uh, having um, uh, coursed and bullied his neighborhood, uh, having illegally invaded Crimea and having started the first war of aggression and invasion in Europe in decades. And so that should be a warning sign uh, that we haven't been doing enough and we haven't been investing enough in stability. Um, and given the ambitions that China has shown in the Indo-Pacific, um, we can contain China in the Arctic. Um, but much of the Indo-Pacific is probably uh, a game that the United States only is able to play because it will involve air power and maritime power uh, with some key allies and partners. So that means Canada has much more of an obligation uh, to invest in Europe and to be able to ensure it can shore up European allies so that the United States can redeploy some of its assets uh, to the Indo-Pacific. And my concern is that the, um, the investment that we made after World War II in global stability that made us the uh, stable, prosperous, harmonious, uh, not just country, but continent that we have was built on playing ahead and shaping the world of the 20, 20th century. I'm not sure there's a vision in Ottawa by either of the parties for how Canada can and needs to shape the world of the 21st century to ensure that we can benefit from the stability, prosperity, security, and democracy that has made us the country that we are today. Do we realize the cost that's involved here? 
I think part of the problem is that politicians only look at both the economic, uh, the fiscal costs of what it might take to be able to shape this world and to play in this game, both in terms of defense and security investments, but also in terms of investments in our international affairs. Um, and they're looking perhaps at some of the electoral costs because these are not investments that um, electorates usually like to vote for, in particular in Canada. There's no votes to be had, usually in foreign policy. And so this is why governments tend to shy away and investments in defense tend to be controversial. But the question Canada needs to ask itself in a highly contested geopolitical environment of the 21st century, do we simply want to play on the fourth bench and be a bench warmer? Or do we want to continue to play on the first line the way we did after World War II in order to shape the world in ways that are ultimately not just in our interests, but also in institutions that allow us to assert our interests for a country that is a, of a relatively modest uh, modest size. And I would say, relatively speaking, our capacity to do that has diminished significantly uh, over the last 30 years. And yet the threats, the risks, and the demands have grown exponentially. And so if we don't find a better balance, uh, it means not only will we not be able to uh, secure and defend ourselves against hostile actions, we will also end up living in a world where we will look back in 20 or 30 years and say, if only we had had some foresight with a relatively little investment now, we could have made a significant difference in terms of not ending up in the world that I think uh, Canada is headed towards over the next 20, 30 years if it continues to put its head in the sand and be ignorant of the strategy that got us to where we are today. I'm just reading again from... Dr. Christian Luprecht's op-ed, Canada's inaction on Arctic security is bound to embolden adversaries by standing idly by. Canada is failing to deter. In the process, Canada is inadvertently making the Arctic less secure, but not just for us, but for our most important strategic ally, the United States, as well as our European allies, against the panoply of gray zone dangers and hybrid warfare below the threshold of armed conflict, by adversarial state actors, Canada continuing is continuing to demure until the status quo on the Arctic is no longer tenable, proliferating and accelerating threat vectors against the whole of the Arctic. Northern and Canadian society require a whole of government approach. Big job to do. We have. Do we have the players? First of all, Christian, uh, it's a, again a big job that needs to be done. Do we have the players who can do the job? Well, I think what we need to look at is the United States has been investing heavily in the Arctic, um, not just in terms of capabilities, but also in terms of, for instance, a new regional education center, the Ted Stevens Center. Um, the Arctic was the only domain, if you want, that didn't have its own uh, center to assemble knowledge and to disseminate that knowledge when it comes to uh, to security and defense. And I think our allies are simply, and, and you can see the same pattern by, for instance, um, Norway, uh, Denmark, Sweden, Finland, um, each of which can muster uh, just a few, uh, just a little bit fewer in terms of sort of the number of, uh, of jets that uh, we as a country can muster. So if you look at this, there's about four times the capabilities in terms of jets and about uh, twice the capability, even when Canada is fully staffed up in terms of uh, F-35s. Uh, so I think these are just sort of some examples of that. Um, our allies and partners are clearly taking this challenge, the Arctic challenge, uh, quite seriously and uh, foresee a significantly contested and difficult future.
Um, and so Canada here needs to ask itself whether it is prepared to be a real player. Because if you're not a player, the allies will simply say, that's fine, but you don't have a voice. Um, and if we claim to be an Arctic country and we claim to be taking our Arctic sovereignty seriously, uh, but we don't, uh, but we don't actually have a voice, uh, then it means that uh, we've basically abdicated our national interest and are leaving it up to other countries to decide what the future in the Arctic should look like. Um, and I think that's tragic. But these are the argument; these are the issues that significantly diminish Canada's standing in the world and Canada's standing among allies and partners. And the Arctic is now becoming a litmus test, um, uh, both within continental defense and allied defense. Uh, of how serious a player Canada actually is. Yeah, the uh, Kingston Dispensation of 1940, when Canada and the U.S. decided to cooperate on threats against the continent, made North America the most secure, prosperous, and stable continent the world has ever known. We think about that. Uh, as the Arctic approaches, um, as the Arctic approach poses the most immediate and direct threat to the North American continent, Arctic security is the ultimate litmus test of Canada's commitment to this bargain. And it is a bargain. It, it really is. A, it's, a, it's a bargain that I don't think we sometimes realize just how much of a bargain it is to us. Yeah, the silver lining here is that, of course, under the challenging circumstances of uh, the late 1930s and 1940, uh, that a U.S. president and a Canadian prime minister got together and forged a strategy that uh, would not only defeat uh, the greatest threat to democracy um, at the time, uh, but that would also then shape the second half of the 20th century. And so this is, I think, where the opportunity is that faced with the geostrategic competition and the confrontations of today, are we once again going to have a vision not just for this country, but for the world and how we're going to shape the world in the way uh, that is going to be uh, in uh, in our interest and our ability to assert our interests. And I think, you know, people sometimes think that uh, the institutions and the world we live in today is sort of something that came uh, by happenstance. Um, and to some extent, uh, people can be excused for that, given that we spent decades uh, hitching our foreign policy to the United States, rather than having an honest and open conversation among Canadians, what a sovereign foreign policy should look like. Uh, but the opportunity and the need here has come to have a more honest conversation, uh, both because uh, the challenges and the complexities of the challenges are rising exponentially, because we have significant deficits in investment, but also because uh, our interests uh, and, uh, to some extent, our, our ideologies are increasingly diverging uh, from our closest ally over the recent decades, that is to say, the United States. Uh, and so if we can't find the courage, muster the courage uh, as a country and among the political leadership uh, to have these very difficult conversations with Canadians, uh, then uh, there's a serious risk that Canada will simply be reduced to relative irrelevance in global decision-making. Yeah, and we have to make this decision very quickly. There's not a lot of time to be wasted. Uh, the world, I think we underestimate uh, the, uh, ex the, the, the pace at which uh, the world is changing and how much more complex the challenges are getting uh, as a result of climate change, as a result of demographic change, so naturogenic causes as well as anthropogenic causes, that is to say the conflicts as well as the ambitions uh, that are being stoked by hostile actors 
in particular, of course, Russia and China, but also Iran, North Korea, uh, Venezuela, and the like. Um, and uh, that simply sort of staying the course and hoping for the best. Uh, as I always remind people, hope is not a method, and hope is simply not going to get us uh, where we will need to be in 10 or 20 years. So I hope that we can develop uh, the same sort of courage uh, that we showed in the Kingston dispensation in 1940 um, in um, making sure that we can provide for the security, stability, and prosperity uh, that Canadians seek for the coming decades, but that is in serious jeopardy as a result of all the trends that we just talked about. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 